Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me again on the PCICS Challenging Cases podcast, where each episode we discuss an interesting and challenging case with the providers from the institution where these cases took place. I'm David Warho, your host for this episode, and this week we have another interesting mechanical circulatory support case from here at Lucille Packer Children's Hospital, Stanford. We're going to talk about mobilizing a heart failure patient on VA ECMO. Joining me this time, one of our cardiac ICU hospitalists, Emily Wessler, and the director of our ECMO program and one of our cardiac intensivists, Wamzi Arlagata. Now, before we start, let me mention that we have no disclosures, and PCICS does not endorse the specific views of our guests, and pretty much everything we're going to discuss is going to be off-label. Emily, why don't you tell me a little bit about how your patient presented? We are presenting a 14-year-old male who has Emory-Dreyfus muscular dystrophy with a previous New York Heart Association Class 1 symptoms and a normal myocardial function on echocardiogram a year prior to admission, who uh, presented first to an outside institution with a one-week history of URI symptoms and decreasing exercise tolerance and shortness of breath. Um, he had a respiratory viral swab done at the other hospital that was positive for rhinovirus. He was sent to us because of decreasing function by echocardiogram and worsening troponins. When he came to us, how did he look? Um, he was appropriate and talkative, although uh, appeared weak and not able to get out of bed. Um, he had, was tachycardic and tachypneic. Um, he was on dopamine and milrinone when he came to us and had previously had at the outside institution a non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, but none for us when he was, when he presented to us. So that's pretty interesting because it sounds like there might be sort of a mixed picture going on. Right. So that was part of the confusion. So Emory Dreyfus muscular dystrophy can be associated with both dysrhythmias as well as myocardial dysfunction um, that is progressive. Uh, but he also had this viral URI uh, one week prior to admission that uh, could also have been presenting as a viral myocarditis with increasing enzyme leaking. Uh, his troponins were elevated and he, uh, his BMP was elevated as well. So uh, what, what was going through the team's head when this patient presented as far as he was already on pretty high medical support uh, with dopamine and milrinone? And you mentioned that he already had symptoms and was not even able to get out of bed. Was that his baseline status with his emory drive? No, not at all. He actually had class one symptoms prior to uh, this UR these URI symptoms. He was able to walk. He was able to participate in gym classes. Uh, for the most part, other than limited by his muscular dystrophy. Um, but he was fully uh, New York class one uh, prior to that. And so uh, you think that his inability to get out of bed was due to his cardiac function and not related to his muscular dystrophy? That is correct. His heart failure symptoms were definitely uh, restricting him. He would get short of breath just walking to the bathroom. And then as far as a patient like this, who you're not quite sure if it's myocarditis or if it's an underlying uh, cardiomyopathy, talk me through your thought process about, you know, ventricular assist devices versus ECMO versus 
listing for transplant and just doing medical therapy. Right. So he was pretty complicated in that we didn't have a whole lot more medical therapy with which to use. We didn't want to necessarily put a VAD in him immediately because if this was myocarditis, then he would have had some recovery um, and perhaps would have been able to get out of the hospital on some medications while he completely recovered. Um, and we did not want to put in a VAD for that interim period. But he also had this muscular dystrophy, and so putting him on ECMO and paralyzing him and sedating him was also not ideal. It's very interesting. And so what did the team ultimately decide? So Dr. Maeda, our surgeon, came in uh, the following morning um, and had suggested that perhaps we could uh, do a novel approach of ambulatory ECMO that would allow him to be extubated and at least standing at bedside, if not walking around, while we were able to see which direction he his cardiac symptoms were going. Okay. And um, when we were deciding this, as far as experience at other places or experience at our institution, um, had we discussed cannulation strategies or rehabilitation strategies or anything else uh, about this prior to making this decision? We, in pediatrics, we had never used the strategy before. They have used it in the adult population at Stanford, but not here in our pediatric CBICU. Um, it has been used for venovenous ECMO at other institutions, but never VA ECMO. So we needed to make sure that we had uh, cannulation sites that were going to be stable um, that would allow him to be able to be extubated safely and walking around. And so uh, we opted to take him to the operating room, intubate him in the operating room, and uh, do transthoracic cannulation. So talk to me about the chest cannulation and the, the strategy to secure the cannulae so that this would be a safe ambulatory VA ECMO? So there were a couple of things. Um, the first was he uh, tunneled the cannula through his right chest wall. Um, the aortic cannula was advanced relatively far down the descending aorta so that we could maintain stability there as well. Um, and because his, he had no intracardiac communication and his uh, function was significant enough, they also cannulated his LA. So it sounds like there were three cannula going through this patient's chest and they were secured pretty firmly to the chest wall. That is correct. Okay, so talk to me about how we secured the cannula for ambulation. So we made sure that the cannula were secured with three different methods. The first was the cannula were all tunneled through uh, and coming out of his chest, right chest wall. Then the next layer was we used a Centurion Foley anchor, the kind that are used to secure a Foley to the leg, um, which fit around each of the individual cannula. So we were able to secure those to the chest wall exteriorly. And then finally, before he 
um, got out of bed and ambulated, we put on an abdominal binder in much the same way that we use them in our VAD patients. Really interesting. Um, are, are we aware if Dr. Maeda or any of the other team had any discussions with other institutions about this strategy, or was it purely based on prior experience and extrapolation? I am unaware if Dr. Maeda spoke that morning about uh, to other institutions about this. I do know that he has spoken or participated in the cannulations over at Stanford at the adult hospital at Stanford, um, which is how he thought that we might be able to use this in this 14-year-old. All right, and um, as we were preparing to do this strategy, was there a lot of buy-in required from the nursing and PT staff and respiratory therapy? Because I would imagine that getting a patient on VA ECMO out of bed is quite an undertaking. Absolutely. So yeah, so this was a very complex um, involvement of a lot of different personnel. Um, so prior to taking him to the operating room, we discussed it with both the charge nurse and the nurse manager of our CVICU. We talked with our perfusionists as well as our ECMO specialists. And we discussed it also with the head of our PT and OT departments. And did they require a lot of convincing, or was everybody pretty much on board? I think, honestly, there was a little trepidation just because it was the first time that we have ever done this, but our institution is one that we do like to progress our field, and so people were willing to try this. Interesting. So after cannulation and after the patient recovered in the immediate post-operative period, were there any specific changes to our standard ECMO protocol, perhaps anticoagulation strategies or... Um... I would say the biggest change to our typical ECMO strategies are that he was extubated almost immediately. He was extubated within 12 hours post-op. Um, so that certainly is not our norm here at Stanford. Um, but that was all very successful. His anticoagulation was standard practice. Um, and as far as flows and sweep are concerned, quite honestly, the first time that we ambulated him, we proactively increased his sweep and his uh, flow rates, um, partially based on what his blood gases were showing, but also just because we were not sure what his body was gonna require, uh, but subsequent ambulation episodes did not require any changes to his flows or his sweep. And talk to me about each time we ambulated and how many team members were required for this? So the first time we ambulated him, we had a bedside nurse, the charge nurse, a perfusionist, an ECMO nurse, PT, OT, the ECMO doctor, and some family members were all involved in the first ambulation. Subsequent to that, we tried to streamline as much as we could. And talk to me about his post-operative course now. Uh, did he recover and uh, get decannulated, or did he ultimately need a VAD? He did not recover. Um, he did need a VAD. He stayed inpatient post-VAD uh, for lung rehabilitation. 
Um, he was able, because I think we were able to do this ambulatory ECMO in this interim period, he was able to maintain a pretty significant amount of his strength um, from a pure motor standpoint. And as a matter of fact, um, he just very recently had his heart transplanted. Oh, great. That's wonderful to hear. As we bring this podcast to a conclusion, do you have any words of advice for other institutions that are thinking about instituting novel mechanical circulatory support strategies in complex patients like this? The beauty of what we do is that we have such complex patients and we have complex medical therapies that we can offer them. You just have to find a way to tailor the two together. And your imagination is the only limit. Come up with something that makes sense and makes sense for the patient. And there is somebody somewhere who can help you come up with a way to make that work. Just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean you can't try it. This is really interesting. Thank you so much for speaking with me about these cases today. Thank you, David. Thank you for having us here. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. Please be sure to look out for our next episode through the PCICS website by going to pcics.org. Further episodes will be available with PCICS membership starting next month. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license.